following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Welcome, everybody. We wish you a happy Easter. Today we're going to explain some principles related to this sacred day. A lot has been written and disseminated on the internet regarding the pagan roots of this tradition. While there are many beautiful correlations stories, symbols, and narratives. What we hope to convey by the end of this lecture is the practicality of these myths, these symbols, these allegories. To begin, we can discuss some of these correlations to more ancient traditions that precede Christianity. Easter comes from Ostara, the Germanic goddess of fertility of spring, the rising sun, from Eostre, which means the east. You also get words like Ostre or astral, pertaining to stars, the heavens, the divine. Basically, in a nutshell, the goddess of spring represents the resurrection of life, especially during the spring equinox, which is when the day and the night share equal hours, from equus, Latin meaning equal, and nox meaning nights. We can compare this to the summer and the winter solstices, the Latin sol meaning sun, and sistere, meaning to stand still. In the winter solstice, we know that there are greater hours of night than there are daylight. And in the summer solstice, this is the opposite. In accordance with the axis of the earth and its rotation around the sun. Now, the question becomes, why is this the focal 
point, the fulcrum, upon which pagan mythology and even Christian teachings gravitates. What's its practical purpose for us as we are striving to become spiritual, to aspire towards greater development and wisdom in our lives, to overcome suffering in our daily circumstances? This dynamic in nature parallels our internal life. There is a symbology to this myth of how life returns in the spring and dies in winter and fall. These represent for us something very concrete. While we see how the solar light gives sustenance to all beings without distinction through the processes of nature, we also find that in our own particular development, there are periods of growth, of resurrection, and even death. This also applies the process of genesis or birth, life and death, and then rebirth is found even within religious traditions and forms in terms of their progression throughout history. We can say that religions are born, they live, and they die. But more importantly for us in our studies of Gnostic esoteric Christianity, we look to understand the transfiguration of religion. How different religious forms, after their death, have been resuscitated, have been transformed, have become new. This is because divine principles always emerge in relation to a given time, place, culture, language, and identity. The different religious forms that have been given to humanity across time have always been done in accordance with the needs of a given society, in accordance with the level of being of the messengers. The teaching is the same. The essence of rebirth spiritually is universal. You find this teaching within all mythologies without exception. All religions teach a type of death and rebirth. But unfortunately, these forms themselves, through exposure to humanity, to its greed and its avarice, its destruction, have corrupted the essential teaching, the practical dimension of how to be born again, to give birth to something truly divine within us. But fortunately for us, even though religious forms and traditions die, they are transmuted in a form of alchemy towards new meanings and new understandings for the different contexts in which this knowledge is now being given. So we have the Gnostic teachings, which are an explanation, a transformation and a transmutation 
of these different religious forms. We explain what they mean practically for us. So the term transmutation you might have heard quite frequently. The word trans is the prefix for movement to carry over, to pass over, as in transition, transportation. It is a movement and a flow, a redirection. And mutate, as in the term mutant, something that changes form, something that fundamentally has a new appearance. And this is directly applicable to Christianity in relation to the previous traditions from which it originated. It's because when these traditions die, so to speak, they lose their practical value for how to change fundamentally. They ferment. And from that fermentation, different messengers come to humanity to resurrect those essential meanings again. This has happened with Judeo-Christianity and Islam. Even Nietzsche said very infamously that God is dead. It's because the core of that teaching within the Judeo-Christian religion had been lost. But now, as Nietzsche says, we want the superhuman to live, to resurrect. Symbols, allegories, principles, archetypes. But what do they mean? How are they valid? I know a lot of times people who might be of a Christian dispensation may look at the previous religions and traditions with scorn, with derision. And this is very unfortunate because such a perspective fails to take into account how the principle of Christ, the divine, is within those faiths, albeit in a symbolic form that is obviously different to the palette of modern Christians and maybe a verse for them. It's also unfortunate that people who tend to be very materialistic and also unfortunately superficial, we can say, Look at religion from a historical perspective, ignoring that there is an experiential dimension to their tradition. We find this evidence in modern Abrahamic traditions, which reject the different faiths before, primarily due to a misinterpretation of idolatry an idol, such as thinking that the ancients were stupid and that they worshipped statues and stones, which are not the true faith or true God. So it's the purpose of this lecture to emphasize a core teaching within Christianity that applies to all religions without exception, and that we're going to explain the symbols of this mystery that is greatly misunderstood today. In terms of idolatry, we can say that this is a misapprehension of symbols, 
taking things literally. People like to mistake the symbol for reality. And this is fundamentally mistaken. For example, what do you think of when you look at an American flag? Do you think literally that there are 50 stars somewhere along with its red and white stripes literally in some place in time and history? It's absurd. We understand that these are representations of something deeper on a conceptual dimension and even a historical dimension in that case. The same thing applies to religious forms. When we literally believe in the iconography of any faith without understanding its practical application to us, we are committing idolatry. We are worshiping an idea, a statue, a concept in the mind, which tends to make us very petrified, stone, rigid. And we find this type of mentality amongst many people who have a very strict adherence to a dogma and who are not able to look at some of the deeper currents that course throughout these traditions. Therefore, why should we venerate the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Isn't it true that nature resurrects every spring and that the sun gives us life S-U-N, but also S-O-N, if we go deeper here. This is because even the pagan traditions worshipped Christ. They recognized that the force of life, the sun, is a direct representation and manifestation of a divine truth. And that the Christians reappropriated that symbolism to fit a new context, history, language, culture, and way of being. The forms are not at fault because the principles are within them. Because the sun gives life to all traditions. That solar light which we find in our sun gives sustenance and equilibrium to everything in every level of our existence. It performs a sacrifice for all beings without distinction which we find parallel in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who was an incarnation of that light, that spiritual effluvia in being. We even know from quantum mechanics that light has consciousness. Light makes decisions, even on a subatomic and the level of particles. Light is not an inanimate lifeless thing. It is the essence of life. And the ancients knew this before our scientists could even verify it. So the previous cultures and humanity were not as ignorant as we may like to think them. So we're going to explain some archetypes, some principles today within the Bible, whose genuine roots have been condemned and expunged from public Christianity. However, we're going to demonstrate that there has always existed an esoteric Christianity, a heart teaching within the Christian faith that is practical. It is born from conscious experience. 
So we're going to explain some of these practical symbols for us. The purpose of divine narrative. Not to relate some type of history, but to guide us in our internal development. It's important to reflect on what it means to have faith, especially since many people have faith in Christ, in Jesus, the physical personality who lived 2,000 years ago. And to understand what this word really implies. What does it mean to have faith in the resurrection from the dead? The original word for faith which has been erroneously translated throughout time, is pistis. It means to have faith, to trust, to have knowledge from observable experience, derived from pytho, to prevail, to grow in confidence, or persuasion, such as power, like in the term pistis sophia, which we find is the Gnostic Bible, Wisdom power, the power of wisdom. The original Greek term has been mistranslated into belief. And the term belief today really doesn't have much value, if we're honest. Belief is a conviction in the heart and mind based on an idea or feeling but without verification from experience. There are many people today who have many beliefs. Throughout diverse traditions, you find it even within conspiracy culture or fringe culture, people believing in in flat earth, or other ways of thinking which have been disproven by factual scientific evidence and even one's experience. People believe in many things. They have confidence in many things. They are persuaded. They are even eloquent with their language when transmitting certain ideas. But where is the proof? Where are the facts? Upon what do we trust? What do we perceive? Is it a conviction in the heart and some higher power? Is it a sentiment, an emotion? It's true that morality, we can say, having some type of religious values, is useful in its orbit. We can believe in many things, but does it mean that we really know? And of course, the great divide between Gnostic Christianity and public Christianity is based on this. Within the public doctrine, there is the belief that one must have faith in the blind sense of not knowing in order to be redeemed from pain. To resurrect into a new life. But the hidden esoteric Gnostic Christianity, which has been underground for millennia, and which is now being taught openly today, explains that faith is direct experience of these principles. It is not a belief. It is not thinking something is true or feeling something is true. It is knowing through action. 
pistis, faith, has been terribly abused. And there are many verses in the Bible which help to explain what we are emphasizing. We can say that this lack of distinction between faith and belief, knowledge from experience, and assumptions and convictions based on a lack of experience is the failure of modern Christianity, in which many philosophers like Nietzsche critiqued We can say that one of the main chasms we find within the Christian tradition especially is a lack of systematic methods for understanding these principles because those teachings were taken out. They were not conducive for certain power structures that existed in the past, certain types of mentality that did not want to introspect but sought to externalize religion as a projection of the mind, an idea, but not really looking at reality. Meditation was removed from the Bible. Even though Jesus meditated 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness when facing temptations, we can go to confession and believe that we are redeemed. And because people don't look within, they don't practically examine themselves for the root of their sufferings. They think that religion is about some external adherence to a program. We can go to confession and beg for forgiveness, but the psychological tendency towards those wrong behaviors will continue to exist in the mind, in our subconsciousness, our unconsciousness, our infraconsciousness. So there needs to be practical works if our spirituality is going to be effective. And we offer many tools and techniques in this tradition so that we can develop genuine faith. I'm going to read some verses for you from the book of James, which are very profound, and elaborate these points. What is it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Or better said, can belief save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, belief or faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Because there are practices and exercises like meditation that help us to experience what our religion is talking about. These are practical exercises, methods and meditations that allow us to verify what Christ is, what divinity is, how to know from facts, from experience, not beliefs. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well, because it's not a bad thing to appreciate that there is some higher power in one's life. 
that there is a higher force, a higher influence, because this can give us some type of comfort and guidance and an ethical foundation. However, the devils also believe and tremble because they know the existence of divinity as well. But they are not working to change. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And here's an example that is interpreted very historically in relation to the founder of Judaism. We can say Abraham, one of the patriarchs of that tradition. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by his works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So in this myth, he was told by divinity to sacrifice his son Isaac. But... As he was about to draw the knife, filled with terrible pain in himself, an angel stopped him and gave him a, I believe, a goat to sacrifice in his stead as an offering to divinity. This is a symbol of how we need to renounce our attachments, our beliefs, our most craved ideals, our assumptions. Our identity, even like a father to his son. To give it up for something superior. For a higher principle. Because we have many beliefs, many ideas. But they are just that. They're not verified. If we're honest. But because... In this story, Abraham was so dedicated to knowing the truth and to practice in himself to know these things. He was given direct guidance. Instead, was given an animal to sacrifice. And what is that animal? It is pride. It is lust. It is anger. It is envy. It is greed. It is jealousy. It is wrath, morbidity, fanaticism. Fear, despair, all of those qualities that are our lower animal psychological conditioning and which keep us trapped in beliefs, in ideas, but not really knowing. Because fear and these defects and anger cannot know the truth. They are the aspect of our psychology that has to be cleansed and removed if we really want to commune with divinity. And we're going to explain a lot more excerpts that relate to this, especially. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone or belief, merely thinking or feeling something is true, but actually employing certain conditions and practices that are the precondition of knowing and accessing the truth. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, practically for us, 
Faith is realized through action, through doing. But what actions do we need to employ to give birth to something superior in us? In synthesis, the resurrected master Moria, who wrote The Dayspring of Youth, explained the nature of real faith, but also what is commonly denominated faith or belief. He emphasizes how faith is really our conscious application of energy for a spiritual purpose through techniques. It is not merely by sitting back on the couch and letting life happen to us and thinking, if I just have my convictions and belief in divinity, everything is going to be fine. I relate to what he stated. Here we think a note upon faith should be of interest. Initiates say that its meaning has been misunderstood. Faith, as the world uses it, possesses no spiritual nature. Though in the secondary system, meaning in relation to our creative energies, the force of life we carry in our body, which really establishes order within our psychology as well, it means power and energy apply to action. All success in yoga, which is from the Sanskrit yug, reunion, the Latin relegare, religion, comes from this application. For the true quality of faith is a solar force that illumines the mind and attracts to it atoms of power and energy. So you're not physical atoms, but spiritual energetic forces. More human wrecks have resulted from the misconception of this quality than man realizes. It's important that we understand the symbology of the sun. What is solar force? What is the solar light? What is that spiritual atomic energy that can empower our soul so that it can be reborn through the death of its impurities? We call that energy Christ. And to understand what this holy day is, we have to understand what Christ is. The term Yeshua in Hebrew, read right to left, has many meanings. You can look at the individual letters to understand a deeper comprehension of this symbol or this archetype, this blueprint for some type of creation within us. If you want to learn more about what the individual Hebrew letters signify, in a deeper level, you can study the course Alphabet of Kabbalah on Glorian.org. We're going to explain a few things today to give you an introduction and even a correlation with Christian doctrine. Because the Jewish religion, the Kabbalah, the mysticism of Israel, is the foundation of Christianity. And to study Christianity without a knowledge of Kabbalah is to approach it mistakenly. So... Yeshua, yod Hey shin vav Hey. You find the same four-letter name of God, yod Hey vav Hey, or Jehovah in Hebrew. We pronounce it Yahava. Yeshua has an extra letter, Shin, in the middle. And if you study the meaning of this term, Yeshua, you go deep into what the letters signify. The letter Shin is fire. It even looks calligraphically like a three-pointed candle or candelabra with a diacritical mark on top on the right-hand candle itself 
of this letter. Yeshua means Savior, and Shin is fire. This is evidenced by the Greek Christos. Read left to right. Christos is the Greek god of fire. So it's a title. It also means anointed one. Yeshua Christos is the savior fire. It is not a name of specifically just one individual in history. It is a title given to any individual, any human being who really perfects him or herself. Who receives the energy of that solar creative divine force, which as a fire cleanses everything and renews one's psychological nature. Just as the solar light in nature resurrects all living things in the spring, we find that this energy can give a rebirth in us if the impurities of our mind die. We find the term Inri, which is a mantra we can pronounce, a sacred sound we can prolong and meditate upon its vibration within us because sacred sound or the verb is the creative power of the Logos, the divine word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God from the book of John. The verb, the creative expression of our energies, is a solar generative energy. We create with our speech. But unfortunately with us, we tend to take our energies and use them in the wrong way. We don't renew our psychological states with how we tend to communicate in the world, how we use our breath, our force. But when we learn to use sacred sounds in meditation, using our speech in the right way and by conserving our energy and transforming them within us, we renew our psychological nature profoundly. The term Inri is an acrostic from Latin, has two meanings that are pretty significant. Ignis natura renovator integram, fire unceasingly renews nature. Or, in necis renascor integer, in death I am reborn, intact, and pure. There are many verses in the Bible that refer to God as fire. Can you remember the burning bush? that Moses saw? Or from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 24, For Yod Chava, thy Elohim, is a consuming fire, even a jealous El, a jealous God. So that fire is a form of light, an energy, an intelligence, which permeates and governs all of nature. And that light is so jealous for our well-being that it sacrifices itself like the sun, in order to give life to everything. That energy within us is also very jealous. It wants the integration of all the different parts of our consciousness that are fractured, are trapped, conditioned within defects like anger and pride and lust and vanity and shame. That fire needs to renew us. That force, that power, to give birth to something truly sacred inside. In the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, we find, I, Christ, am come to send fire on the earth. Also, from the book of Acts, 
We find many references to sacred fire, especially within chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly the apostles, upon them there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's sad that in modern Christianity that they want to divorce their tradition and this symbolism from the Eastern traditions, especially the mysticism of the Kundalini, the sacred fire, which is Pentecost, which is an energy that resides in the base of our spine, within the sepulchre of our body, in order to rise up and eliminate the impurities we carry within and to illuminate the head, the mind. This is the Holy Spirit of the Christians. It is the Christic energy, the fire, which the Eastern mystics called Kundalini. But of course, there's a lot of misconceptions of what Kundalini is and how to work with it. It is only achievable through the path of initiation, which we're going to elaborate today as well. Pentecost symbolically is initiation. It is an entrance, the beginning into a new way of life, a new way of being, which has its laws and stipulations and codes of conduct and methods, which are written in books like The Perfect Matrimony by Samalan Vior and many of his other books, which teach the science of how to work with this energy. Now, in this symbol... Those sounds from heaven that the apostles heard are internal experiences we can have in meditation. Where we control our vital winds, the energies of our breath, which is known in the East as prana, through exercises like alchemy, transmutation, and even pranayama to a certain degree. Now, speaking in tongues does not mean babble or gibberish. As many modern denominations assume that the apostles were speaking different languages or even nonsense, gibberish. That's the Tower of Babel in the Bible. That's not the intelligence of the Holy Ghost, the wisdom of the Christ within oneself, because that is just an intellectual theory, an idea. But instead, that fire of Pentecost is an intelligent wisdom a balanced, inspirational fire that allows the individual to have greater wisdom and intelligence in navigating the wilderness of life. It is the capacity for comprehension on a deep way, in a spiritual way, to understand the spirit behind the written word. We can read any scripture, interpret it with wisdom, with understanding, because behind the letter that kills through its literal dogma, is the spirit that it is hidden within it that vivifies, that gives life. This is why Jesus spoke in parables, in symbols, in archetypes, so that people who were educated and taught within these mysteries, who are conserving their creative energies themselves, could understand it. As stated in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 10 to 11, and the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Or from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom in a, of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there is an esoteric dimension to Christianity that's not been made public. This is what's implied here. This knowledge was originally given from mouth to ear, though a very conservative and highly protected tradition, and only given to those candidates who had proved their worth by entering certain schools of initiation or mysteries, where they can learn the proper application and methods of this science, of how to work with that fire of Christ within one's own body, particularly within a marriage, a matrimony. But let's explain a few things. Historical narratives encode a divine allegory, parables, symbols. This is the grammar of consciousness. Archetypes, stories and narratives that hide deeper truths, a wisdom that is applicable to our daily life here and now. Christ is an internal principle. He was a person who lived, a great master, who is continuing to guide humanity today in secrecy, who represented for us something very profound, which we need to understand from experience within. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we have the following statement. Examine yourselves, whether you be in pistis, meaning faith, from experience, Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ, Yeshua Christos, is in you, except ye be reprobates. Have we examined our minds in the face of temptations in life? Are we looking at our own desires, which crave and seek pleasure at the expense of our heart? of the happiness of others? Are we looking inside to see our own defects, our anger, our pride, our vanity, our lust? Are we looking at that daily, moment by moment, examining our hidden defects? Because faith, pistis, is confidence born from experience. It doesn't mean to have conviction without verification. It is what we perceive within our own consciousness. So are we certain that we don't possess defects or elements in our mind that really make us reprobates, reprehensible? We can say demonic, evil. It's easy to assume that we are very saintly people. It's a belief, but it doesn't really hold much weight. We examine the facts of our life and our suffering, that we continue to engage in behaviors that produce problems for ourselves and others. Pain. We can have faith 
in Christianity and Christ to believe that we're going to be saved by following a dogma. And yet, there are many verses in the Bible that really do not validate this assumption. Because so long as we have any defect in our minds, we can enter heaven. Here's what is stated in the book of Matthew by Jesus. Chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Obviously, this applies to the opposite sex as well. So what constitutes our level of being, our psychological state? Are we examining ourselves and our states to see what is conditioned and what is free? Do we discriminate our inner perceptions, our thoughts and feelings and desires to see their root, to see that we have adultery in our mind? We can't enter heaven with those faults. Which is why it's stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. through 10, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. So long as we contain these psychological contaminants, we can't go to heaven. This is directly from the Bible. People believe that they're going to be saved because they have faith or belief in Christ, that he died for our sins. The literal historical person. However, the reality is that for most of us, if we look inside, we don't find Christ there who is active in our mind, our heart, and our body in a given moment, who is behaving and thinking and feeling and doing. Because God and the devil can't mix. The being, our Christ, the divine principle within us, and our desires, our egos, our defects, or Satan in the Bible, can't mix. They're incompatible. It's like oil and water. The word Satan from Hebrew means adversary, shaitan. What greater adversary is there within us when we want to fulfill these divine principles of compassion and purity, and yet our mind drives us to commit acts that are truly destructive, truly reprehensible? We have to have a radical honesty with ourselves to look at that, to examine it. Are we bringing forth beneficial action? Or what is detrimental? We have to look. Look inside your internal world. Discover yourself. Look to see if really selflessness is there. Christ is there. The truth is that we have the potential for Christ to manifest in us. But for most people, that's not developed. And there are many initiatic symbols and stories that relate to the progressive development of that potential into someone that is capable of incarnating that intelligence. You can study in relation to the perfect matrimony by Salman Vior, the path of initiation specifically. However, the truth is that most of us, we have a seed that can grow into something fully and truly human, like the birth of Jesus in the manger, 
which are the different animal egos we carry within, our defects. So most of us tend to kill that potential from even initiating that process. But for that, we need to see ourselves for who we are. And that Christ precisely is a type of perception inside in which there is no self, in which you perceive the inherent emptiness of intrinsic identity in which you are perceiving life and your psychological states and world, but without any conditioning filter. There is no individual self like anger or pride blocking it or filtering it, obscuring it. Isn't it true that when we're angry, we only see and think and feel through anger? We don't rationalize. We don't really see reality. We only see our desire that's frustrated. We feel pain and we want others to feel pain as well. We have to purify ourselves of that to become like Christ, a perfected being that is luminous, has a brilliant character, an inspiring and noble attitude, a divine philanthropy that really works to act on the benefit of others and not for oneself at all. This is why in the book of Matthew, Jesus stated in chapter 6, verses 22 to 23, The eye is the illumination of the soma from the Greek. Literally, it means body, but it can also indicate the soul or the self. So the eye is the illumination of the self, the soul. If thine eye be singular, if your perception be aplos, meaning clear, simple, uncomplicated, pure, thy whole self will be full of light. Yet if thine eye be impure, ponieros, thy whole self shall be full of darkness. Therefore, if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? What does it mean that our eye needs to be simple, clear, uncomplicated, pure? It's not the literal eye, as many people misinterpret. It's how we perceive psychologically. Your perceptions from your consciousness, which is seeing through your mind, your heart, and your body. It's perceiving and receiving the impressions of life, but also needs to look inside to see our psychological impressions. That is the eye that can illuminate us. If it's not clear and simple and uncomplicated and pure, it means that we're seeing in the dark. It's a strange or paradoxical principle. If that light be darkness, how great is that darkness? Isn't it true, as in the example of anger, when you are filled with rage, you're perceiving life through that condition? It is darkness, though. It is pain. It is suffering. Our lives and our ways of seeing the world and ourselves tend to be very complicated. We're fractured. We're split. We have many psychological conditions and egos and defects which don't make our way of seeing the world very clear and simple and pure. We need to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, to have an innocent attitude, to receive life in a new way moment by moment, to perceive without any lens that colors what we are perceiving. That light, when it's unconditioned and pure, when it's selfless, when it's perfect, is Christ in its ultimate sense. 
But of course, we have to develop that potential where we're at in the beginning with a lot of care, nurture, and attention. A lot of diligence. Because how we perceive is exactly the cause and conditions that produce the pain of the world. Christ said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. From the book of John, chapter 8, verse 12. So Christ, is, as an energy, is compassionate. It's a state of being. Here in the verse, he's talking about how our eye needs to see clearly without conditions. And then he's saying, I am the light of the world. He is that energy of being and perceiving. But for us, we've taken that light and we have adulterated it. In beings like Jesus of Nazareth, that light is perfect. There was no fault and is no fault in him. But the truth is that any person can become like him, the Master Jesus, or in his esoteric name, the Master Abaramento, as stated within the Gnostic Bible, his real spiritual name. Anyone can become like that, can resurrect from the dead of a sterile, painful life into something very sacred and holy. But it requires training. It requires work. So, take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. So light is understanding, it's intuition, it's reconciliation, it's patience, it's insight, which emerges from the fire of life within our body, the fire of Christ, which is in ourselves, not only without. However, as I said, we carry the fire of life, that energy which gives us vitality and the ability to exist, to be, but we abuse it. This is the meaning of the light of Christ being betrayed. Just as the historical Christ underwent his passion and crucifixion, likewise our consciousness must experience the bitterness and the solitude of Golgotha. A path and process that is very difficult because it is not easy to eliminate everything that is wrong about us and within us. Now, we have to understand three traitors within the biblical story of Jesus because it is too easy to historicize, to merely condemn three people who were the axle upon which this whole drama gravitates. The three traitors are symbols. Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas. Now, there were apostles and people in history who existed who represented a drama, a symbol, a story that applies to us now. Not in the past, not in some remote history, but in our very being. This is why in the Jewish mystical tradition of the Kabbalah, in a great scripture known as the Zohar. Rabbi Shimeon said the following about the Old Testament, which can also apply to any scripture. Woe to the man who says that the Torah came to relate stories, simply and plainly. 
and simpleton tales about S.O. and Laban and the like. If it was so, even at the present day, we could produce a Torah from simplistic matters, and perhaps even nicer ones than those. If the Torah came to exemplify worldly matters, even the rulers of the world have among them things that are superior. If so, let us follow them and produce them from them a Torah in the same manner. It must be that all items in the Torah are of a superior nature and are uppermost secrets. So let's explain what these traitors signify for us. Primarily because if we wish to understand and experience the resurrection of Christ in us, we have to understand what the death of our faults and defects implies. We have Pilate, who was a Roman governor over the Jews in history, who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. But what does he represent? He is an official, an authority figure, someone who is very respected, who people go to for advice and commands, someone who has a very strong reasoning, deliberation, analytical mind. Pilate is the mind itself. It is the intellect that can either justify or excuse itself with reasons. Many times we commit mistakes and Pilate in us, that figure that wants to have authority and to command, justifies its actions with many reasons. It excuses its own culpability. It washes its hands clean of the crucifixion of Christ. This is our mind. Our mind justifies many things. We can feel in our heart that we are really suffering from our conscience because we know we did something wrong. And that sentiment is something superior and profound and deep. It is the voice of the consciousness. The heart knows from hunches, intuitions, knowledge, without having to reason. But it's the intellect that tends to overpower the heart. Much in the same way that Cain in the Bible killed Abel, the mind kills the heart. The intellect or desire rationalizes and excuses itself for its wrongdoing. And therefore, Abel, our soul, dies. This is not something in the past, but it's now. We do it every day when we don't follow our conscience, our hunches. But there are other figures. We have Caiaphas, which is a high priest who is very devoted to his religion, Judaism, his tradition, his dogma, his faith, at the expense of killing Christ, persecuting that principle in us which can truly revolutionize our way of being. And because that energy is so transformative and so radical, the mind and the heart fight because it is a dethronement or deposition of a type of mentality and way of being that has been held onto for a long time. Type of conditioning in us. Caiaphas is the heart consumed by fanaticism. This can signify a devotee of any tradition, any religion, whose devotion to an ideal or a concept blinds him or her to reality. Caiaphas is really evil will. 
does not want to do what is right because it is attached to what others think of it, how others perceive it. It wants to be in power through adherence to a system, a political belief, a religion, a dogma. Even science, you find Caiaphas very strong where people are not able to see reality because they're attached to their beliefs. So Caiaphas is any person of blind adherence to tradition who does not have any experiential verification or conscious basis. So people conform to dead traditions. They despise whatever doesn't fit within a prescribed dogma. They persecute whoever and whomever does not fit a given paradigm. If you don't believe me, just go on social media and look at all the political craziness going on in the world. You find this in religion. You find this in every faith where that ego sees its tradition as the only authentic one and therefore everyone else is damned. You find this even in the Gnostic tradition as well. It's very sad to see it, but it happens. It's because of Caiaphas, that tendency However, who is it that starts this entire process of Christ's imprisonment? Isn't it Judas? Who is Judas? He is a mystical devotee, someone who really loves religion, who loves divinity, who loves God, who loves spirituality, who loves to share spiritual axioms on the internet, and on forums and in different mediums, who even teaches with a lot of faith and conviction, and yet loves desire more, loves lust, loves fornication, sexual degeneration more than divinity. Judas is the desire for pleasure, the desire for sensations, for sex, for drugs, for children, for money. This is why Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver, which is a symbol of the opposite of Christ. These are lunar values. What is lunar values or mind? It is all the mechanical ways of being in the world, which really keep the world running in the way that it is now. The sun, which is creative, gives life. It is original. It provides the substrate of all existing things, the foundation for all life. It is the creative potential that expresses within all divine masters. Its opposite is mechanical ways of being, the moon. The moon governs many mechanical processes in life, whether menstruation in women, plant life. You find it even in crime rates when there's full moons. The moon governs many things in a cyclical way. It is a repetitive cycle in which people who are attached to all these negative things like money and drugs and sex, sensations and pleasures, keep repeating those habits. And they prefer that more than to generate something new inside. And what is the ultimate betrayal of Christ? It is desire. To give in to pleasure. So, this is the temptation one faces. If we wish to celebrate the Easter resurrection, 
these three traitors in us have to die. They cannot exist. They have to be crucified. They have to be eliminated. However, most people don't want to eliminate their tendencies. They want to repeat the same behaviors and merely believe that their devotion or their authority or their mysticism is going to save them. These are the three traitors. They blind us to reality. So, it's important to reflect specifically what penance is, what redemption is, what purification is. Because this is the, the groundwork by which we can really give birth to the spirit inside. So the path of purification is mirrored in nature whereby the fire of the sun descends into hell, symbolized by winter, in order to be born again like the phoenix in spring. In public Christianity, Lent signifies preparation, purification, and penance before Easter Sunday. If you study the Holy Calendar, the Holy Week, the last week of Lent is obviously Holy Week, starts with Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Christ celebrated the Last Supper on Maundy Thursday and was crucified on Good Friday, undergoing Holy Saturday or the confrontation of Christ in hell, resurrecting on Easter Sunday. It's notable that Christ's crucifixion occurred on Good Friday, which is the day of Freya amongst the Nordics. Friday, Venus, the goddess of love. Who is, in Mesopotamian mythology, Ishtar, the Mesopotamian Easter. So how do we conquer desire? How do we conquer the three traitors? We do so through love. I know in the West we don't distinguish between the two, but lust and love are incompatible. You can't combine them. They are polar opposites. Venus, the force of love, symbolized by Mary, Miriam, the Divine Mother, is very pure. However, we have converted her and our Christic energies into a whore through desire, through animal pleasure. So, what do we need to do if we want to celebrate Easter? We have to understand what Ishtar signifies. Who is the goddess of beauty, love, sex, and even war? Because the great spiritual heroes fight against their defects and desires out of love. They sacrifice their animality because they don't want to make others suffer. And therefore they enter their path of the cross, their crucifixion, which is a sexual symbol. The vertical beam is the phallus of a man. The horizontal beam is the uterus of a woman. Through their union and performed with love and not lust by conserving that precious energy of creativity, volatility, of genesis, they give birth to something truly divine. This is the resurrection in one degree. There are many levels of resurrection, but we're just giving an overview and a synthesis. What's more practical for us, typically for beginners, we use that energy to eliminate our faults. So Christ symbolized the path of eliminating defects by descending into hell, our hell realms, which are our defects, our mind, 
for all practical purposes, our inner psychological iniquities. So the myth of Ishtar is the same narrative as Christ descending into hell, so that through conquering desire, ego, defects, faults, the consciousness can achieve resurrection and rebirth within divinity. So in synthesis, she descends into the underworld to confront evil. And on the way, she's forced to strip away different articles of clothing each time she approaches an infernal gate. I believe there's a total of seven, which is very significant. If you study numerology, the Kabbalah, you know that seven is a very significant principle, referring to seven different degrees of spiritual initiation. It could also refer to eliminating seven principal defects, but also giving birth to seven principal virtues, seven vices, seven, seven virtues. So Ishtar does so until she arrives completely naked before her sister, Eresh Kegal, who is the queen of hell, who attacks Ishtar furiously because Ishtar wanted to end evil. Ishtar is imprisoned. She is afflicted with 60 diseases. Also very significant. The number six relating to the sixth commandment, meaning thou shalt not fornicate, meaning do not waste your creative sexual energy. Do not lose that force because you need to give birth and create inside with it, as we're going to elaborate. This is symbolized by water. And if you study the Bible and many mythologies, water is the source of life, not just physically, but also spiritually. It is a symbol of our creative genesiatic spiritual sexual energy it is what can give the potential of creation into something actual realized so ishtar is in prison until enki or ea the akkadian god of water sends an emissary to provide ishtar with the waters of life with which she's revived and then she returns victoriously back to the world through the infernal gates and every time she ascends, she's clothed again in a successive order. So, in a symbolic way, the consciousness descends into matter, to different states of being, which are more dense, and have to return to a divine source. That return is initiation. It is to enter the path of the passion, the suffering of facing one's errors, to die to them and to resurrect and then to ascend. And this parable has many levels of meaning. When we raise the fire of Pentecost, the fire of the Holy Spirit within the spine, within successive octaves, within different internal bodies, we can say, vehicles of the soul, which operate within the different dimensions of the tree of life, that energy helps us to crucify our ego. And this is the kundalini serpent fire, which Moses raised upon a staff in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, a person resurrects within fire, that creative energy. When you raise the creative force, if you study the writings of Saval and Vior extensively, in the perfect matrimony especially, you find that that fire gives birth to spiritual bodies, spiritual vehicles, which we can operate with when we physically go to sleep and enter the internal world. These are vehicles much in the same way that a light bulb is a vehicle for expressing light. 
So if you wish to express Christ in you, it's good to work with that energy so that you can create those vehicles. We call them solar bodies. These are the vestures or vestments that Ishtar puts on when she ascends out of hell. Solar bodies are vehicles of acoustic force. They are matter and energy that do not belong to mechanicity. They belong to divinity. And therefore, they are able to transmit and transform the power of a sun. So after Ishtar descends into hell, it's interesting that all sexual activity ceases in the world. So, before the ascension of Christ, he appeared many times to his disciples. When before the holy woman Christ stated, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. From the book of John, chapter 20, verse 17. As I said, resurrection occurs in degrees. There are different initiations related to the creation of spiritual vehicles inside. Specifically, Samuel Vior, in his book, The Seven Words, in that text specifically gives a very detailed account of what resurrection looks like with the so-called astral body, the Christos, a solar vehicle that allows one to navigate within the astral plane with consciousness, lucidity, and intentionality, with clarity, with awareness. So in that process of working with that astral body or creating the astral body, which is a form of resurrection and rebirth to that degree, the initiate undergoes a process that is explained in the Bible and in this myth of Ishtar. So Samal Anvayor stated the following. This is how before the ascension, the initiate has to descend to the submerged worlds in order to destroy the most intimate roots of evil. Thus the initiate penetrates into truly infernal regions, impossible to describe with words. The ascension comes precisely 40 days after the resurrection of our crestos. So we're going to elaborate a few specifics relating to the resurrection of the astral body. Because for approaching this topic of resurrection, this is perhaps the most introductory and accessible. For people who are learning to work in the perfect matrimony and who are seeking to create the solar vehicles themselves. So it's interesting that Salman Vior provides an explanation about the meaning of Lent in relation to Easter, which is very misunderstood. So in the creation of the astral body, one has to face temptations within the internal worlds, in the submerged states of the consciousness, in the hell regions, known as Klipot and Kabbalah. These are the inferior states of our consciousness and psyche, but also there are levels of nature which are inferior to our own, beneath our physical world, within the internal regions and layers of the earth, but in an internal dimension. I'll read for you at length what Samalanvira wrote. During these 40 days that precede the ascension of the astral body, the Crestos, a vehicle that allows us to fully manifest Christ at that level, the initiate is totally prohibited from all sexual contact, since he must maintain his aura totally luminous and serene, free of any passionate waves. As we've explained in many different lectures, we work with the perfect matrimony, in which a married couple combines their sexual force with purity and with love, transforming it and conserving it and raising it within the spine in order to give birth to the soul, 
in the process of conserving and raising that energy, especially within the third octave, within the astral body, because one is working with different levels of initiation from the physical, the vital, and the astral. The third initiation, we can say, from the bottom up, the tree of life. One is working with that alchemical marriage. But in the process of perfecting this initiation, one has to abstain from sexual contact, much in the same way that in the myth of Ishtar, when she had descended into hell, all sexual activity in the world ceased. This is the same meaning here, the mysteries of Lent. Only after the 40 days can the initiate continue practicing his rite of sexual magic. But during those 40 days preceding the ascension, the initiate must transmute his sexual energy through the mind. During these 40 days preceding the ascension of our astral body, we will have to inevitably descend into the abyss in order to definitively cut off all relationships, all roots, all ties with the creatures of evil. There we meet our former colleagues of evil, and there they ridicule us and attack us incessantly. There we have to live, or better said, relive all those tenebrous scenes of the past. And in this way, we cut off the roots that unite the tree of our life to the abysses of evil. Now the initiate will comprehend why the master must abstain from the sexual rite with his spouse for those 40 days. It is necessary that the aura be brilliant and luminous in order to defend oneself from the potencies of evil and in order to make it easier for the hierarchies of the divine white lodge to do the work of uprooting our astral vehicle from the putrescence of evil. This labor is very heavy for the hierarchies. Now the devotee of the path will comprehend the esoteric meaning of Lent. The authentic Lent is not before the crucifixion of the Master, but after his crucifixion. But already the Catholic Church and the other Neo-Catholic, Protestant, Adventist sects, etc. lost the tradition of all this. So, we explain a little bit about the Tree of Life. So in synthesis, in relation to the myth of Ishtar, this divine force of life descends from the physical world, Malkut, within the internal worlds, within the subconscious regions of nature, which are the hell realms we just mentioned. Infernal states, in order to confront all of our past history within those regions, our past karma, we can say. But we need to reinitiate that journey upward from Malkut to Keter and even beyond. So these are ten spheres, or ten sephiroth, the Hebrew term for emanations, which relate to different states of consciousness, qualities and modalities of being. We're currently in Malkut, the physical world. Above that we have Yesod, the vital energies, the foundation of our spirituality, the sexual creative force. We have Hod, which is the astral vehicle or the emotions. We have Netzah, relating to the mind, victory. And above that, we have more rarefied states of being, like Tiferet, which is our willpower. Beyond, we have Geburah, which is our divine consciousness, our soul or divine soul, and the spirit chesed, which is mercy. Our inner particular God, El in Hebrew. Above that we have the trinity of Christianity, and also the trinity of all religions. Keter, Chokmah, Binah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Dharmakaya, Sambokokaya, 
Nirmanakaya. Many names for these principles. The Tree of Life is a map of our consciousness, but also teaches us the different gradations and levels of nature. If you wish to study and learn more about the Kabbalah, we have different courses and materials online that you can reference, especially Tarot and Kabbalah by Samal and Vior. And Kabbalah is the basis for interpreting the diverse religious traditions of the world. It's not merely the sole patrimony of Judaism, but is a map that can explain many mythologies and teachings. So Ishtar is precisely the fire of a man and a woman because the sexual creative energy is the power to create. The word Ish in the Bible signifies fire or man. And Isha is woman. So in the book of Genesis, you have man and woman who are Adam and Eve, who textually are referred to as Ish and Isha. Fire of a man and fire of woman. And that together they can create something superior within themselves. As we mentioned many times, sexual energy is a form of fire. When a man and woman combine their creative sexual fires, taming them through conscious love, you form Ishim. And we have a prayer in the invocation of Solomon the Wise, which states, Ishim, assist me in the name of El Shaddai. So these are Hebrew terms, Hebrew names, which can help us to understand how to achieve Easter or Ishtar resurrection. What is El Shaddai in Hebrew? Christians are familiar with this term as the Almighty Living God. It is the Holy Spirit. And the strength of Shaddai El Chai is the Almighty Living God. It is the power that can give life, the power that can create, not only physically, but spiritually, more importantly. The word El in Hebrew means God, and Shaddai or Shaddai can mean devil. The Hebrew name Shaddai derives from the word Shaded, meaning to destroy. Likewise, Shaddai is a field, and it's where the most subtle beast of creation had dwelled, the serpent, in the opening of Genesis, chapter 3. What's interesting is that Shaddai, or El Shaddai, means God, my destroyer. But why is that? It's interesting that the sexual force is not only the power that can create life, but also it's the power that can destroy. And it's associated with the serpent, with the devil of all things. So how is that energy both of God and the devil? This is the mystery of sacred sexuality. If we examine sexual behavior in society and humanity, we can find that lust and desire, like prostitution, is the source of great pain. It destroys the potential for spiritual life. Why is this sexual power a destroyer? We know it relates to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that this knowledge or energy can give life of a pure type or an impure type, depending on how we use it. It's enough to look at the news, especially, to see cases of how people who are addicted to lust suffer immensely. I mean, there was a recent shooting that went on where a man went into a group of massage parlors and killed many people. Some news outlets reported how the reason why he engaged in that action was because he was frequenting those places to satisfy his desires, so to speak. He was a sexual addict. 
And for him, and according to his reasoning, to escape from that, he went around and killed many people. It's a terrible tragedy. And the reality is that sexual addiction and desire, attachment to lust, to fornication, destroys the mind, destroys the psyche. And we see in many examples and cases in humanity how this type of action produces pain. But that energy can give something divine or create something divine in us. It is not only the power to destroy, but the power to create life. It is the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Bible, the symbol of that. The word Shaddai is an acrostic. It hides the phrase Shomer de Latot Yisrael, which means the guardian of the doors of Yisrael. It is a secret science relating to how we use the creative energy of Yesod, the foundation of spiritual life. Because as the states in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, Chaya, and few there be that find it. So both Adam and Eve, in the original Hebrew, are named Ish and Isha. And together they form Ishim, a sacred divine being with the power to create. If they control the serpent, symbolically speaking, they don't eat the forbidden fruit, so to speak, which we explain very openly is the orgasm. The expulsion of the blissful energies of sex for a few moments of gratification, which is symbolized by the expulsion from Eden. Eden in Hebrew means bliss, voluptuousness, happiness. But there are ways to take this fire, to conserve it, and to raise it up within oneself from its conditioned state within desire, within hell. So that we can form a new being to give a form of rebirth. It's interesting that the word tar, tav, aleph, resh, reading from uh, right to left, the middle, you have aleph, yod, shin, which is ish, and then tav, aleph, resh, which means to describe to depict, to represent, to narrate. What does it mean to narrate or describe with fire? Symbolically speaking, we must learn to inscribe the principles of Christ within us. To speak the word, to live it, to manifest it within oneself. So we have to learn to write these divine archetypes or principles, which are like fiery particles, essence or force within our consciousness. We do so through living the doctrine. Samuel Vera mentions many times, it is written with fiery embers in the book of life. Even Nietzsche in his Thus Spoke Zarathustra explained, write with blood and you will discover that blood is spirit from the perfect matrimony, the two rituals. We could say that this path of initiation in which we ascend up the different sephiroth towards our heavenly source is a form of writing, a form of inscription in which we encode through our practices combining sacred sounds with our creative sexual energy within a matrimony in order to manifest our being, to express divinity. Salman Vera mentioned in The Perfect Matrimony, initiation is your own life. If you want initiation, write it upon a staff.
Now, there's some other etymologies and meanings here that are particularly interesting and significant relating to Ishtar, how we create spiritually. We find the word Tar or Tartarus within Greek mythology relating to the hell or the infernal worlds. We also find Taurus, the zodiacal sign of the bull, relating to the earth element and also the planet Venus or the light Aor. Our body is a form of earth. So many times in the Bible when you see that there are references to the earth, it's referring to our body. We need to learn to cultivate our body and its energies in constructive ways. We have many exercises like pranayama, transmutation, mantras, runes, sacred rites of rejuvenation, prayers that we use to cultivate that divine force and use it in a spiritual way. And this is how we create light from our earth, Taurus, Aur, the light. And of course, that light, that understanding, that intuition, that comprehension emerges when we learn to work and handle the fire well. So light emerges from darkness, the Bible mentions many times. The Easter resurrection emerges, the light is born in us when the darkness is conquered. When we comprehend and eliminate our errors. It's interesting that the word Ishtar contains almost the same letters as Bereshit, in wisdom or in the beginning, which is the opening line of Genesis. So Ishtar only lacks the letter Bet, which signifies a house or wisdom, which is Chokmah in the Kabbalah, the symbol of Christ, the second sphere on the top of the tree of life. Bereshit is an interesting acrostic with many meanings. It's very deep. You can study many courses on Glorian.org especially, which unpack the meaning of this phrase. It's really a beautiful code, which hides a lot of depth and profundities that we don't have the time to elaborate here. But in synthesis, Bereshit is the first word of Genesis, as we find Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. At HaShamayim Ve'at Haaretz, the heavens and the earth, which are a symbol of psychological states of being within us, this tree of life, the heavenly worlds, out of the earth, how we cultivate our physicality. Bereshit is creation to give Genesis and relates to the path of initiation itself, how we create that light within seven lower sephiroth, especially seven lower bodies in which we must raise the fire of Pentecost, so to speak. So, Aleph and Bet, the only difference between Bereshit and Ishtar. So what is Aleph specifically? It is our breath, our vital forces, our energy, our wind, we could say. And it's interesting that in the myth or the book of Acts, we found that the mighty wind rushed through the chamber in which the apostles were crowned with serpents of fire. That wind is our breath, the spiritual force, or prana in the east. And we can use that prana, that vital wind, that breath, harnessing it within our bet, our physical body, the house, which is a temple of God, in order to regenerate, to perform Easter, Ishtar. But we have to know the wisdom and the science and the methods for that. So to elaborate and finalize some points, we want to really emphasize that this teaching is more than just from one man, as we emphasize the writings of Salman Vior, but we find it in a 
coded way within the Bible, the work with sexuality. Resurrection is related to rebirth. And we find in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, a very famous teaching which has been, unfortunately, very uh, misappropriated. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So that water is your, your seminal energy, your matter, from which if you conserve it and transform it, you can give birth to something spiritual in you. Birth is a sexual problem. It is not a matter of believing or thinking or following Jesus in our heart. It is a matter of action, of applying energy, that creative force, to specific endeavors with purity and with love, with comprehension. This is how we can give birth to Christ in us. I am the resurrection and the life. He that pisteo in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever liveth and, we could say, believeth or has faith in me shall never die. Again, that faith is not a matter of concepts and ideologies, but of working practically with our energetic potential. But unfortunately, many people want to follow beliefs, ignoring that there is a sexual component to the esoteric dimension of Christianity. So this is the straight and narrow gate, which many do not enter, many do not follow, as indicated by Jesus. Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that which leadeth unto life, Chaya in Hebrew, and few there be that find it. Many people do not even enter the door that leads to life, which is resurrection, because they refuse to die to their defects and really develop compassion, selflessness. So humanity often detests the path of life, which is the regenerative faculty of our creative sexual expression. To conserve that power inside, to never lose it, to never waste it. To create spiritually, not as animals, so to speak. And in conclusion, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. If you're interested in learning more about the practical dimension of resurrection, how to enter that path, follow its codes and stipulations, its methods, you can study The Perfect Matrimony by Samal and Vior. You can also learn more from the book Christ and the Virgin by the same author as well. So I hope that with this explanation, you have greater clarity about the, some of the pagan roots of Easter, but also its essential focus, its direction, which is practical. To learn how to change fundamentally, psychologically, to work with our energies for divine purposes, and to serve others with compassion, with selflessness. So if you have any questions, I invite you to ask them. We have a question. 
Earlier you described a quote where God is described as jealous. Can you please explain God's jealousy? What is that? How does it differ from the vice? So, the translation of jealousy often is skewed by our own perceptions of the term. Primarily, our egotistical sense of jealousy, of feeling envious of another person, wanting what they have, perhaps, is very different from the unique description of God as a jealous being. Unfortunately, the tendency in us is to project our ideas about what God is onto divinity, onto reality, without really experiencing what that principle really is. Divinity is jealous in the sense that our inner being, our inner God, demands purity. Our consciousness, as we explain in our lectures on psychology and in different books, is trapped within conditions, which is ego, desires, shaitan, Satan, the adversary, the enemy of spirituality. Now, because our consciousness is trapped in those different defects, we are not able to act with full capacity at our highest potential, the highest degree of divine expression within us. Divinity cannot enter and manifest in our actions if we don't eliminate the impurities. And because divinity, if we feel a longing and an inspiration to study these type of topics, is pushing to achieve that perfection within us. Because that is the ultimate longing and goal of divinity, is to fully express within a perfected human being, which is the symbol of Jesus and Easter, Ishtar. But first you have to descend into hell in order to change, to face and confront your intimate defects and faults so that we can extract what's pure from the mud and return it to divinity. And if divinity was not jealous and didn't want to fight over our every single intricate component of our soul that's trapped in defects, we would be lost. Divinity is jealous in the sense that our inner Christ is demanding, as I said. Wants to achieve perfection of all the different aspects of our psychology within. And that's the myth of the crucifixion, the passion of facing all the trials and adversities of life, of our past mistakes, which in the East is called karma, to fulfill the law so that we can die to all imperfection and resurrect within a higher state. So it's different from the vice. To be jealous is an ego that wants something that someone else doesn't have and despises the other person for it. But the jealousy or the zealousy of God or the zealotry of God is the profound will and enthusiasm that divinity has when working on our behalf, pushing us to change, inspiring us with inquietudes, longings in the heart to want to aspire towards these mysteries and to experience them. We have a question. What other stories are there or examples of crucifixion occurring in other religions who represent Christ in regard to the symbol of the cross? Different mythologies and different religions 
teach the same principles in different ways. Now, the explicit teaching of dying on the cross was given by Jesus, literally with his physical body, in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. From what I understand, he was really a radical master, Master Abramento, to teach that with his life, to sacrifice even his body, to demonstrate that drama for us so that we can understand a deep message about the narrative. Now, there are different teachings in different faiths relating to the purification of the mind. Now, explicitly crucifixion to work with the cross, which is an alchemical symbol of man and woman working together to overcome their defects and to transform energy, is particularly specific to Christianity, especially with the symbol of the cross. But you do find the cross in many world religions. You find it all over the place, even in Hinduism, you find it within the Nordic mythologies, the runes, the rune gibor, so to speak. You find that process mapped out in different ways. In Buddhism, you find the Buddha is meditating and comprehending his errors while tempted by Mara, while he's meditating beneath the Bodhi tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the same symbol. Using that energy, overcoming temptation, introspecting, manifesting the divine. But uh, I think the most profound and elevated message did come from Christ, who was a very high master. He really made a great sacrifice to allow himself to be crucified so that we can have this message. It's a great act of compassion and real tremendous sacrifice. But if you study the perfect matrimony especially, there are many examples of different traditions that explain the essential mysticism of the death of the ego. I mean, even in Islam, you find the war of Prophet Muhammad against the infidels, which is a symbol of working against your own defects. So they're masked and coded in different ways, maybe not explicitly with being crucified on a cross, but there are other examples of meditation and purification that are elaborated within the different traditions. Yeah, we have another example. Uh, Quetzalcoatl, the Mexican Christ, was crucified. You can study... Uh, Sacred texts online especially is another example of a master who carried his cross amongst the streets of uh, the Aztecs specifically. You can study Aztec Christic magic as well by Samal and Vior where you can learn more about the mysteries of Quetzalcoatl or even uh, Cabo of the Mayan mysteries should have some references to him, there, uh, to him too. We have a question. What, is it, what does the descent into hell look like practically? It seems to imply to tolerate defects to a certain degree in order to gather experience about them. If so, this is a very intricate and dangerous matter, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, practically speaking, there are levels to entering hell, so to speak. Obviously, a deep example of that is if you physically go to sleep, you're meditating, and you awaken consciousness within the internal worlds, you can find yourself within the hell regions where you're outside of your physical body, but are navigating those regions. That's one way in which you can descend into hell, where you can actually investigate certain defects of yours. But perhaps for many people who may not be proficient or efficient with astral travel, we enter hell many times in our daily life, in our psychological states. When you have an ordeal in life and a conflict in which you have a tremendous, strong sense of self emerge, 
a defect that is producing a lot of suffering in you, you're in hell. You're descending. You're facing yourself. The term descent within initiatic studies has to do with confronting and evaluating one's psychological state within a given circumstance where you face a problem and your reaction to it. And the reaction is what's most compelling. How are you looking at yourself? Are you looking at yourself? Are you examining the intricacies and the subtleties of your mind, Pilate, your heart, Caiaphas, or your desires, Judas? Practically speaking, we descend into hell when we face ourselves, when we confront our own iniquities. Now, it's important that, in a sense, we have patience with ourselves because it's a difficult process. Obviously, if you have a challenge and a painful moment in your life, an ordeal, it can be very hard to transform it, especially if we're not training ourselves well enough. We have to have patience with ourselves to understand that we make mistakes, that we identify to a degree more or less with our errors. So we need to tolerate ourselves in that, reg in that regard. But we also have to be very firm and to have no tolerance for the ego, to really go to war against it, to fight against it, to make the effort to see it for what it is. And that's how you gain valuable knowledge and experience, when you extract understanding from the different circumstances of life. This is why we meditate. We're observing ourselves throughout the day. We're shining light within our psychological interior. And we're looking for the dark conditions of the mind, which are lurking in the shadows, our defects, our egos, so that we gain knowledge about them by looking at what they are and how they function, what they think, feel, and do. So it is a very intricate and dangerous matter because if we identify with and give our energies over to our thoughts, feelings, and desires, thinking that we're thinking and feeling that we're feeling and acting on a negative impulse, obviously we waste energy and we we fall down, so to speak, in the path of the cross in a matter of speaking, in a psychological sense. Well, yeah, it is a very dangerous matter. We have to be very careful. We have a question. I've always been saying Ishim, assist me in the name of Shaddai in Invocation of Solomon. Is it in some book? It's in some books. But you said it's El Shaddai. Is that correct? You can say Shaddai or El Shaddai, it's really the same power that you're invoking, the power of the Holy Spirit, the almighty living God within sexuality. So I personally say El Shaddai. We might have a more updated translation in one of the more recent publications of the Gnostic prayer book, but specifically you can say El Shaddai, Ishim assist me in the name of El Shaddai, or Shaddai, it's, it's, they're both effective. What matters is that you're praying to that aspect of the tree of life and your inner sephiroth to receive divine aid. We have a question. So Easter has become a celebratory holiday. In light of what it really symbolizes, should this be celebrated? Should this still be a holiday for us? What should we be doing? What can we use this time for in a practical sense? Or are we just going about our regular inner work? You can perform the Eucharist in remembrance and recognition of Christ's sacrifice, the Master Abramento, but also to inspire those divine solar forces within you so that you can charge your heart with Christ, that force. So we should celebrate Easter. It's a very sacred day. It's a holy day 
which we can follow by or adhere to by practicing deep meditation and especially the Eucharist and deepening our psychological work because that's really the essence of what determines our spiritual trajectory. Our inner work is based on the work with Christ, the energies. So the Eucharist is especially powerful for that. You can perform that in your home. You don't necessarily have to do it with a group. You can study online a video on Glorian.org specifically for um, Blessed Food and Drink, which is the Eucharist. That can really give you a lot of strength and encouragement for change. We have a question. In this lecture, you referenced the Sixth Commandment because the number 60 came up in a reading. It made me wonder how I would make numerological connections correctly. Also, if there are 10 commandments, but the numerological tablet only goes up from 1 to 9, how do we differentiate the first commandment from the 10th in the text? So in terms of numerology, to really be adept at interpreting the numbers within Scripture, you have to be very familiar with the Kabbalah, but also the sacred arcana of the Eternal to Rome. There are different courses online on the Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah and the 22 Arcana of uh, Tarot in Hebrew, especially, where you can study what these numbers signify. And once you have a very profound knowledge of what those principles mean, it becomes easier when you interpret the scriptures to understand the correlations and the connections. Specifically, the Tarot is the building blocks of the scriptures from east or west. If you really want to understand what these different scriptures signify, study the synthesis, which is the arcana, the laws of the sacred eternal tarot. So the number six can relate to the sixth commandment, as I said, thou shalt not fornicate, which in Hebrew or Jewish mysticism is very profound. But if you really want to understand in a deeper sense the Ten Commandments, but even also the Twelve Commandments of Moses, because there are more than just ten, that are commonly propagated in the world. You can go on to Gloria.org. There's a course about that. The Twelve Commandments of Moses, I believe, where you can study in a very deep way the significance of those laws, which relate to the Tarot especially, but also Kabbalah, the Tree of Life, and many forms of mysticism that also complement each other. So there's a lot of aspects and layers to this knowledge. I've kind of given a synthesis, but also a brief overview of different myths that relate to numerology and Hebrew and the tree of life. In synthesis, it all boils down to your practical work. But if you want to study those sources, you can. They will help you to elaborate deeper into the meaning of these numbers application to your life. Question. Would you say that Netzach in the Tree of Life is related to Pilate? Can you please go into the three traitors and how they relate to the Tree of Life? Is there a polarity of inferior and superior in the Sephiroth they represent? Can you please describe the polarities? Yes, we can relate the Tree of Life to uh, the three traitors specifically. You know, in synthesis, we say that the Tree of Life relates to uh, the aspects of our being. The three traitors really belong to hell. They belong to Klipot, the subconsciousness, the hell realms, the inferior dimensions, the inverted Sephiroth of the tree of knowledge or the tree of life. Now, our mind is Netzach, which is thought, the mental body, the mental sphere. 
Which of us is abused by Pilate, so to speak, our lunar mind? Hod, the emotions, can relate to uh, the desires of the heart, which there is a correlation to Judas especially, to the moon, because astrologically I believe Hod relates to the moon, but also to Yesod, which is desire, sexual energy. The sexual force. Because Judas takes that force of Yasod and abuses it within hell. Pilate takes the powers of the mind within Netzach and abuses it within the inferior worlds. And then Caiaphas, which is our evil will, takes the potential energies of our willpower within Tiferet and, it, and conditions them and channels them through the klipoth, through desire. While the tree of life in itself, in its superior aspect is pure, it is the superior aspect of our being, we do find those regions reflected within the Sephiroth themselves, within the infernal planes. So you can say in a sense that Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malkut have a polarity, but you know we use this image of the ten Sephiroth and its inversion to arrive at an easier understanding or grasp of what these principles imply. But in synthesis, the ten Sephiroth above are of the being. But their inversion is in hell, which is really where the three traitors belong. But yes, they do relate to the Sephiroth. They are the shadow of the tree of life. They are in Islam known as the tree of Zakum, the tree of death. And you find that parallel of hell within all religions, specifically. Any other questions? No more questions? I wish you a happy Easter. That you enjoy the holiday in practice and in meditation especially. In reflection upon Christ within you. I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.